Hello and welcome back to the weekly roundtable edition of The Bunker with me, Alex Andreu. On the podcast this week, we hope you didn't throw away your face mask because there's a new kid in town and its name is Omicron. How many more desperate people must perish in the Brexit aftershocks? We zoom in on the diplomatic impasse around channel crossings. And if you think the female reboot of Ghostbusters has the potential to cause violence, wait till you see Ghostbusters Afterlife. We discuss the well-established link between Doctor Who and crime. All that and more on this week's Bunker. Welcome back to the Bunker. Let's meet today's panel. First up, welcome back to former diplomat Arthur Snell. Hello, Arthur. Hello, Alex. Arthur, on Friday, Ukraine announced that they had uncovered a Russian-linked coup plot, which the Kremlin denied, of course. What is going on in Eastern Europe at the moment? Well, in Ukraine particularly, uh, there is clearly a concerted Russian effort underway to destabilize the country. Uh, And of course, you know, if anyone feels like defending Russia, let's not forget that they did invade the Crimea, but also parts of eastern Ukraine in the Donetsk region. But specifically, this coup plot, the allegation is that a, a massively wealthy oligarch called Renat Akhmetov was involved in plots that were associated with representatives of Russia, that sort of overlapped with the activities of the Russian intelligence agency and so on. Russia, mm. of course, denied everything. But I think we uh, we might want to take the Russian denials with a certain element of uh, scepticism, given their track record in, in the area. And if you want a deep dive into Russia, the latest edition of Doomsday Watch is a great listen, so be sure to check it out. Another episode is out on Wednesday. Which worldly problem is in the spotlight this week, Arthur? We're taking a look at the Middle East and most particularly Saudi Arabia and Mohammed bin Salman, the uh, the crown prince, who, of course, has upended the tradition of that country being controlled by extremely old men. It's now controlled by this young prince who is associated with the death of Jamal Khashoggi, but also a very kind of brutal and authoritarian leader. So hopefully that'll be of interest. Mm, sounds good. Also back on the bunker... Hello to freelance Westminster journalist and author Marie Leconte. Hello. Marie, as we go into the studio to record, a Labour front bench reshuffle is going on. What do we know so far? I'm going to be entirely honest with you. We do not know that much. So it kind of started. It's been quite funny because it started sort of overnight when there were certainly rumours that a reshuffle was going to happen at some point. Um, And then this morning it was actually, ta-da, surprise, the reshuffle is happening now. As Angela Mm. Rayner was actually giving a big speech on Tory Sleaze at the Institute for Government. So apparently her and her team were not especially thrilled, I would say, by being sort of like overshadowed um, by that decision. And then, you know, and then basically not much happened. So we know that Kat Smith this morning uh, was out of the shadow cabinet, unclear if she resigned or was sacked. So she's an MP. He was always on the left of the party and quite close to Jeremy Corbyn. So not Mm -hmm. a massive surprise. Um, And then since then, it's sort of been a slight drip of of announcements throughout the day. So Joe Stevens has been demoted from uh, Culture, Media and Sports to Wales. Um, Steve Reid, apparently from Communities, is now getting to the to Justice. The big one so far is probably Nick Thomas Simmons, who was Shadow Home Secretary, um, and is now rumoured to be going to trade, which is quite a demotion. And there's kind of a few other rumours going around, but you know, no, no idea if any of them are true. So yes, yeah, so it's not it's not been 
I would say sort of like either especially well executed or that thrilling so far <laughs> at least. Do we know who might be up for her, for Shadow Home Secretary? Quite an important brief right now. Uh, it is, isn't it? Um, no, so we're not sure. So I think for most of the day, journalists were sounding kind of more and more confident that it was going to be Emily Thornbury. Um, but literally, I mean, just before I went on airplane mode, uh, I was seeing some tweets saying that actually it's not going to be Emily Thornbury. So, so that's mm. what I can tell you. This <laughs> is that we, I can tell you with certainty that we don't have a name. Any discernible strategic pattern to it at all so far? Is it a sort of uh, getting rid of left people or is it a, a, just a reduction of the numbers at the top table into more mini- shadow ministerial appointments or what is it? So I think what's been briefed out by Lotto is that it is quite a lot about basically getting rid of like quote unquote fake jobs. So again, and it's true that, you know, it, it was quite a bloated front bench. But as I mean, the, the word on the street and the kind of direction of travel seems to be that a lot of the people getting promoted or allegedly getting new jobs are on the right of the party or the centre of the party, depending on uh, where you stand yourself. So, yeah, so I think it's definitely more a kind of move again yet towards the kind of more centristy Labour wing. So let, let's see what happens with that. We're delighted to be joined this week by Christina Pargel, Director of the Clinical Operational Research Unit at UCL and former guest on our sister show, Oh God, What Now? Christina, welcome to The Bunker. Thank you. You are part of Independent Sage. What is Independent Sage and, and why did you feel there was a need for one? It's basically a group of kind of independent scientists across lots of different areas like public health, medicine, um, mathematics, uh, and so on. And it was set up in May 2020 at a time when the membership of SAGE was completely secret. There were no minutes of of SAGE. So when the government was saying we're following the science, we had no idea if that was true or what the science Mm -hmm. was. So that's kind of what it was set up to do is kind of try and bring some more transparency to decision making. And I think there has been more. We do have now a lot more minutes and clarity over what the government advice has been. So since then, we've kind of evolved much more into um, public communication about covid trying to kind of bring together what's happening in, in the UK and across the world and what that means in terms of policy and what the next steps are. Mm. How much of your time does it take? How often do you meet? Is it quite a big project? Oh, uh, <laughs> it, take, it takes a lot of time, part, especially for me, because I kind of have ended up presenting like weekly overviews of what the data is saying. And I can't pre-do them. You know, I have to do them a few days before because yeah. the situation is so changeable. So for me, it, it literally takes up two days worth at least of my time every week and I still have a full-time job so it's kind of it is it's a lot of work but um I think some of the response that we've had means that I do think it's worth it I think I think it's worth it because it's basically all I've got is my voice I can't I have no control over what the government does so all I can do is, is say what I see do you have ways of measuring how much interest there is out there on your weekly reports, for instance, how many people watch it live um, and how it moves from sort of month to month, as it were? So is it more people watching now than than you? Has it steadily grown or does it tend to uh, attract more people at times like now where there is something newsworthy happening? Yeah, so every Friday lunchtime, we we have a live stream public briefing where, you know, we do some presentations, but we also then have questions from the public and journalists. And that has attracted consistently for the last year, somewhere anywhere between 20,000 to 80,000 views. And yes, it goes up 
at times of, of crisis. So I think some of the highest views were last January, for instance. Yeah. Um, and then again, when Delta rose, and I think it could probably again, like right now, and it and it and yes, there are fewer people who tune in when you know things seem more under control or in the summer. But we've actually been quite surprised by how consistent those numbers have stayed. That people haven't lost interest, and people have kind of they still email me and say, you know, this, you're the person that we listen to when it comes to trying to understand what's happening. Particularly as the government hasn't been doing press conferences that much. Mm. That must be quite nerve-wracking. Um, we'll, we'll have much more from Professor Pargill in a moment. Over the last few months, thousands of COVID-19 variants have been identified and some have even been notable enough to merit their own Greek letter. You may have missed Eta, Iota, Kappa and Lambda. They have gone largely unnoticed in the mainstream. But the latest one, Omicron, is causing quite a lot of concern. There is much we don't know about it, but one thing we do know is that it is more heavily mutated than other variants. Professor Tulia de Oliveira, the director of the Center for Epidemic Response and Innovation in South Africa, said, this variant did surprise us. It has a big jump on evolution and many more mutations than we expected. Christina, what do we know so far? Well, as you say... There's more that we don't know than that we know, but we know that it's certainly spreading very, very fast um, in South Africa, where they have really, really good surveillance. Um, and in the space of two to three weeks, it went from um, 0% of cases to 90% of cases in Hauteng province, which contains Johannesburg and Pretoria. In the last couple of weeks, hospital admissions in that province have also been doubling every week. Um, we don't know what variant they are, but it seems likely they're the new variant. And we know that it has now spread through travellers to many other countries. And for instance, in the UK, there is now signs that there has been community transmission. So it is spreading. We don't know exactly why it's spreading, whether it's more infectious or whether it's better at escaping the um, immune system. The JCVI uh, made an announcement on Monday afternoon in response to that, basically, with some new vaccine categories. Uh, what was announced and how will it make a difference? So what they announced was that everyone over 18 is now eligible for a booster dose, so a third dose, um, which would be an mRNA vaccine, which means it's Pfizer or Moderna. And instead of six months post-second dose, it's now gone down to three months. And that's because, although they don't yet know how immune-evasive the new variant is, the more antibodies you have, the better. And the booster is, gives you a massive boost. I mean, that's, that's the mm, clues in mm. the name there. Um, they've also announced that 12 to 15 year olds can have their second dose after 12 weeks. And they've announced that immunocompromised people can have a fourth dose. So what they're trying to do is just build up as much immunity as they can to prepare for this wave. Anything you hoped for that wasn't there? I know last time we chatted, you had hoped that they would extend it to slightly younger children as well. Are they still holding out on that? Yeah, so... I mean, the US FDA approved um, vaccines for 5 to 11-year-olds back on the end of October. The European Medical Agency approved it last week. And MRH, MHRA, which is our regulator, have said they'll, they'll come up with a decision by the end of December. So it is quite a lot later. Millions of primary school-aged children have now been vaccinated in America. There have been no cases of, of heart inflammation, as far as I know. It has seemed to be really safe and really effective. And given that right now, cases are highest in primary school children for the first time in the pandemic. 
I think it is a priority. I think we do need to to address the fact that that's where transmission is happening. So we can look at masks and everything else, but unless we address schools and children getting infected and potentially passing on to their parents and other relatives, it's not, you know, there's a limit to what we can do. Mm. And and that reduction in the sort of time lapsed since your second vaccination before the booster from six months to three months. So so what's going on there? Because they had said initially that the sweet spot was definitely six months, that uh, uh, sooner than that, your resistance hadn't waned enough, as it were, from the first vaccine. So why is that now reduced to three months? Is it basically because they anticipate another wave? Or are there medical reasons in the data that the sweet spot is actually earlier? I don't think the sweet spot has changed. You know, ideally, you would wait five or six months. I think what's changed is is the new variant. And I think this is a sign of, of quite how seriously everyone's taking it. And we know that Delta can punch through vaccination four to five months after you've been jabbed. I got it you know, um, five months out. So, So I think what they're doing is saying, you know what? The situation is so serious that it calls for us to try and build our immunity as yeah. much as we can before the end of the year, particularly with the Christmas holidays coming up. Yeah. And I guess there's no point having spare vaccinating capacity not being taken up when there's people, you know, a few weeks away from the six month spot that could be uh, having those vaccines. In your latest weekly briefing with Independent Sage, you made a point of congratulating South Africa on how it handled the release of information around the Omicron variant. What did they do right, as it were? A lot of people have been praising them. They've been pretty amazing, really. Like During the last year, they've set up a really strong national surveillance system. So they have some of the best sequencing, actually, in the world, in in South Africa. And they've been sharing their sequences on what's called GISAID, which is a global database for sequenced variants. Um, And then, you know, this variant was first kind of sequences were first uploaded, I think, the week, not last week, but the week before. By last Tuesday, someone actually working at Imperial was raising it and saying, look, there's this there's this variant that has these crazy number of mutations. I think we should track it. And at that point, there are only, you know, maybe five or six sequences mm. uploaded. South Africa then looked in its data, found that they were increasing in this single province, Hauteng. They realized you could spot it in generic PCR tests in the same way that you could with Alpha last year, where it's called what's called an S-gene dropout, which means if you use a specific type of test, you can tell straight away that it's compatible with that variant. And they saw that and saw it was increasing everywhere in South Africa. And so two days, within two days of identifying this new variant, they Mm. did a press conference for the world and said, look, we have this and it's an issue. And they did it knowing full well that a likely response would be travel restrictions. At point when they're coming up to their peak tourist season in Christmas and it's their summer. So I think that is the definition of global citizenship, doing something for the benefit of other people that aren't you. Like South Africa does not benefit from doing that. Hmm. So I think we have to acknowledge it. But more than that, we have to make sure that they don't suffer for it. You know, we know that they're going to take a massive financial hit from all these travel restrictions. There should be some kind of global fund to help support their response in whatever way they think is most useful. And that's not for me to say, that's for them to say South Africa only has a, a sort of 24% vaccine rate. So can we know how effective this variant is against the vaccine? Or will we have to wait 
and see what the rate of hospitalization and death it results in is in a, in a much more vaccinated country, as it were. Yeah, I think we, we do have to wait. There are some initial encouraging signs in that um, I think one of their national surveillance committees today said that of people in hospital in Hauteng, 90% have not been vaccinated. So that's a higher proportion than are unvaccinated in the population. So that might give you a hint that it's protecting against severe disease. What we do know is that it can certainly infect vaccinated people. So, for instance, um, in Portugal, all of their cases are linked to their football team, where one of the players has come back from international duty in South Africa, and then 13 other people have had it. All of them are vaccinated. So we know that it can infect vaccinated people. What we don't know is whether it can cause severe disease. And so far, there's no evidence for that. I know this isn't strictly speaking within your discipline, but it is something you've discussed within DSAGE. Does a new variant mean we need a new vaccine or an adaptation of the current, the existing vaccine? And if it does, how quickly can we produce that new variation to the vaccine, as it were? So that's something that we, we don't know. So the hope is that you do not need a new type of vaccine and that boosting will give you enough immunity to overcome the variant, in which case we can kind of boost our way out of it um, Mm. over a few months. But Pfizer and Moderna are doing urgent experiments right now to test their vaccines on the new variant. And those kind of experiments are going on all around the world. But it takes about a week or two. That's the problem that we're not going to know for a week or two. Pfizer has said that if they do need to tweak it, it will take 100 days to start producing it, which is really quick, but obviously not immediate. And then you've got to um, distribute it, buy it, and revaccinate people. So yes, we can do it, but it it will take several, several months. Hmm. Marie, as soon as the new variant was identified, the by now fairly sophisticated machinery of disinformation and conspiracy also went into overdrive. The, The variant is probably made up because fear had subsided, informed as an archaeologist on GB News. The Piers Corbyn posse are organising protests on the public transport against masks. Some anonymous tweet informed as the word Omicron is an anagram of moronic coincidence. Is this now part of life, that as soon as the scientific community has news on something, the anti-scientific community will counter it with ridiculous conspiracies oh absolutely yes i think so and i think the main the main difference between that sort of you know now and then is that i'm sure that that sort of used to be the case to an extent so you know in sort of like decades past when something would happen a scientist would come out with something with some news as you said i'm sure lots of people would kind of read the paper for example and say actually you know well that's tosh or like people would have kind of small groups and discuss bonkers conspiracy theories i think the problem to state the obvious, is the internet and is the fact that basically those networks now completely like, I- I exist and, and will remain in place, I think. So whenever mm. anything happens with the click of a finger, the tens, dozens, sort of like hundreds, thousands of like of, of those nutters basically can link up and can see, let's say on their timeline, you know, I'm sure you could quite easily end up having, you know, one link being, I don't know, you know, the Who saying something or kind of, you know, the Guardian or whatever. And then within minutes, actually directly below that on the timeline is actually, you know, you may have seen this. It's not true. So I think that the immediacy um, and the reach is probably the problem here. Yeah, it's it's fascinating to watch. They sort of give each other talking points. And then 
a, a sort of argument emerges that becomes a sort of dominant anti whatever is being told. An unidentified employer emailed all staff last week asking them to start coming into the office. One employee replied to all simply with no. <laughs> Their response has gone viral on social media like crazy numbers. Do you think the move away from office working will bring about a more lasting resistance to the sort of nine-to-five commuting paradigm? Probably, yes. I'm quite split on this because on a sort of like, you know, personal note, I hated absolutely every single second of working from home. And the second we were allowed to go back technically to offices again in April, I practically ran to my co-working space, um, you know, and, and I've basically, yeah, I've, I've not worked from home since April. And so, yes, yeah, so I, I personally find it odd because I really, I really do not like working from my house. But um, but that being said, I feel like, again, anecdotally, nearly everyone I talk to, you know, no one wants to go back five days a week. So I think what's especially interesting is that even among the people who do miss the office and actually who like being in the office, none of those are saying actually what I want is five days a week, nine to five. So I think even again, yeah, even the kind of like pro-office cohort wants, you know, either flexible hours or doing three days in the office and two days at home, etc. So I don't, I generally do not see a world where we go back to, again, the full, full normal office life of, you know, the kind of commuting hours and the Monday to Friday. Like I don't, I don't think, like I think that basically becomes, uh, that that's, I, I, I think that's just the old world now, officially. Hmm. Arthur, the vast majority of variants have come from populist countries in the global south for the most part with low vaccination rates. Will Omicron finally drive home the message that vaccination needs to be a global rather than a nationalistic endeavour? Well, let's see. I think the spectacle of the G7 meeting earlier in the year when global leaders uh, from the wealthiest countries came up with a pretty sort of measly a response on funding vaccinations for the developing world doesn't give us much hope. One thing that actually I, I was made aware of, which I think is a great sort of civil society initiative that everybody can participate in, is this idea of get one, give one. So if, if you get your vaccination and you're you're from a rich country and, and you've, you've got your own resources, you donate the, the rough cost of vaccinating someone elsewhere in the world. It's very easy to do because there's a there's a website for COVAX, which is mm. this big, big structure. And it's roughly $20. Of course, people could give more or less depending on how they feel. And maybe that's something. It's not going to fix the global problem. But actually, if people in the parts of the world where vaccinations are widely available were able to mobilize around that idea, it could have an impact. Mm. But isn't the problem more the availability of the actual vaccines rather than the money? to buy them. Isn't that why countries have been criticised for giving money to COVAX instead of giving doses to COVAX, which is what they need? I think that's a fair point. But I would also, in general, although, um, well, we might come on to this, you know, the, the actions of our own government in regard to vaccine manufacturing are a bit hard to understand. What the vaccine technology has shown us is that if the world has a problem that it wants to solve, it will find the resources and the, the structures necessary to solve it. There was a lot of talk at one point about how the Serum Institute in India would not be able to export vaccines because of the crisis that they were experiencing in their country. Well, eventually, you know, that, that the, the vaccines continued to be exported. So there are logistical challenges to do with manufacturing capacity. But I think 
ultimately, a lot of that, again, comes back to leadership. It needs leadership at that sort of G7 yeah. level to, to make these changes. You mentioned uh, vaccine manufacturing capacity. The government is accepting bids for the flagship vaccine manufacturing innovation centre at Harwell, near Oxford, into which they had sunk £200 million. One Treasury source explained the sale as follows. The worry was there would be a surge in vaccine manufacturing requirements and we'd need surge capacity, and that reason is gone. Does this seem right or prudent? You know, it would be funny if it were not a, a deadly disease that, that's killing people with its new variants, potentially. You read that and, and one is put in mind of Lord David Frost last week describing Merry England, a country happily where there are no rules or minimal, uh, you know, COVID restrictions and long may this continue. And I think it gives you a picture of a of a government that had just decided to pretend COVID had finished. Yeah. And, and they were getting on quite well with that pretense. But the uh, Omicron variant has made it almost impossible for that idea to get traction anymore. Not, not for me to question the wisdom of the government. But, you know, it would seem to me that it, a facility like that would be put to ideal use if you just made it manufacture a few million doses and sent them to South Africa as a thank you for having acted so swiftly and selflessly, for instance, um, even if you don't need the capacity nationally, it just seems. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And, and unfortunately, these are very serious times and we have a very unserious government. Hmm. Christina, as someone very close to the latest information on all this, are you making plans for the holidays? <laughs> I was. <laughs> But honestly, I mean, if anything's going to fuck with Christmas, this is it. Yeah. I mean, it's there, bad timing. There's a and, sort and I don't, of grim inevitability to it, isn't there? I mean, I, I would say that if you have plans to, if your family is not in the UK and you have plans to join them for Christmas, I'd go sooner rather than later. We have often discussed the issue of channel crossings in this podcast, the weather getting more wintry and the political rhetoric more aggressive created an impression of a rapidly closing window of opportunity. Tragedy has always seemed a question of when rather than if. Last week, an inflatable dinghy sank, taking at least 27 people to their deaths. They included seven women, one of whom was pregnant and three children, but somehow, the more urgent the situation around channel crossings gets, the more absent is the diplomacy necessary for sorting it. Arthur, these were real people coming from places of extreme hardship. Do we know much about them? We know a little. Uh, there were two survivors. One of those survivors was an Iraqi Kurd and the other a Somali, both men. It seems that most of the people on the boat were Iraqi Kurds, so they come from the northern district of Iraq. Mm. Uh, it's actually an area I've visited several times. It is a place which, of course, has experienced the ISIS uh, situation. It is uh, under constant pressure from neighboring Turkey, and of course, it shares borders with Iran and Syria. So this is a turbulent region, and it is controlled by two rival ruling families, where if you're not you know, within the 
the network of those ruling families, your, your prospects are pretty limited. So it's easy to understand why people in that part of the world might seek a different life elsewhere. Channel crossings in 2021 far exceed previous years. We've had over 25,000 people trying to cross compared to 8,000 in 2020 and just 1,900 in 2019. Why have numbers risen so dramatically? Well, I think it's fair to say there are various theories and not everybody is entirely clear about what the reasons might be. One thing Mm. to remember is that it used to be that people were coming across to the UK in lorries, obviously on on ferries or, or, or whatever. The lorry route has been less popular basically because of much more stringent controls at the port of Calais. Now, that is, of course, in part also due to uh, the change of all the regulations associated with Brexit. Hmm. So in in one respect, there seems to be a, a Brexit factor there. But I think the other important factor to recall is that the people who cross the channel in this way, and self-evidently it's extremely dangerous, particularly at this time of year, are a tiny, tiny proportion of a much larger number of people who are, in general, migrants out of certain regions of the world, but notably parts of the Middle East and Africa, who are coming to Europe. And and as, as has been widely demonstrated, um, asylum applications in Germany and France, Spain, Greece, Italy, all dwarf the, the, the numbers uh, here of those coming to the UK. Even with a surge in numbers of of cross-channel boats, uh, that probably means that underlying that is a bigger surge in numbers on mainland Europe as well. Yeah. Is this increase reflected in the overall numbers of asylum seekers and, and sort of general migration figures, or is it bucking a trend? It's hard to tell at, at this stage of course, Britain has become a difficult place to migrate to for normal uh, purposes if, if it's nothing to do with asylum. Again, because of Brexit, we all know about shortages of all kinds of workers in different parts of the economy. And the other thing to remember is that now that Britain is outside the EU, if a migrant into the EU uh, migration space gets some kind of settlement or or even, you know, the, the right to remain, they still don't have access to the UK because it's not part of the, you know, the EU migration zone. So it may be, of course, a factor of Brexit that it, it's therefore more important to reach the final destination. Ultimately, a, a lot of migrants, for all that Britain has a, a overtly hostile approach towards migration, There are both historical, cultural and perhaps false but perceived economic reasons uh, that people think that Britain may offer them greater opportunity. Mm. Marie, France is a, a, a rich, safe Western country. Why do migrants choose to make the perilous journey across the Channel to the UK? Do we know the reasons um, for people to risk this? Um, I, so I don't think they're sort of data per se but I think anecdotally if, if you read reports of kind of journalists who've, who've been to Calais and have kind of spoken to people getting in boats a, a lot of the time it is you know and it's going to sound like so simple it's stupid but a lot of the time it's because a lot of them speak English and they don't speak French um, mm. and actually you know and these are people who do want to be able to go somewhere safe and be able to build a life for themselves and that is already very hard to build a life for yourself as a refugee so if you don't even speak 
the language of the country, it's obviously incredibly harder. And obviously in France, I think, you know, not unlike Britain, not unlike several other European countries, is also just quite hostile to refugees. So it's not even the case that, you know, you may get the language in Britain, but then you'd have a cosier time in France. Mm. Boris Johnson wrote a letter to Emmanuel Macron outlining five steps to avoid a repeat of Wednesday's tragedy. He shared his letter to Macron on Twitter before the French president had seen it. As a result, Priti Patel was uninvited to a meeting of interior ministers. Is this going to backfire on Johnson or has he basically won over a domestic audience so now he's just playing to them? Well, I mean, you know, and, and I, <laughs> I, I rarely defend Boris Johnson on this podcast or elsewhere, but I feel like, you know, the, the French-British relations have been so bad over the past year. It's been appalling sort of like diplomatically for months and months and months now. So really, you know, what, what does Boris really have to lose by being quite childish and petty to the French? And it, it does feel worth noting that I don't believe, you know, France is behaving especially well on this either, even though I, I would normally defend France on actually, I would say, most of the kind of diplomatic rows between the two countries. So yes, you know, the, the answer is, I think, domestically, that does help him. But the main question is, you know, how long is that going to last for? Because it's not, you know, we are not going to stop seeing people coming in on boats to Britain over the next you know, like years and decades anyway. That is a problem that will keep being there. So, so yes, fine, you know, he's won the battle probably, but he's definitely not won the war. I mean, is this sort of attitude generally to sort of closed borders sustainable at a time of negative migration, record vacancies and labour shortages. How, how long can you sustain this notion before having to concede that, look, we're, we need more people? Well, I mean, you know, the, the, the terrible um, answer I'm going to give, which really makes me want to punch a wall, is that the problem is, you know, we need politicians to basically make the positive case for immigration on the left and on the right. And actually... Um, you know, the last very prominent politician I can think of who, who tried to make the positive case for immigration was London Mayor Boris Johnson, you know, who'd kind of <laughs> definitely set out his stall at the time. Now, again, I like, kind of want to just scream for about five minutes and then come back in. But but yeah, but I think, you know, I, I completely agree with you, obviously. But but the problem is, you know, no one, no, no one is making that argument. And obviously, I think some pro-Remain um, politicians on the left and on the right did try to make the argument a bit. And, you know, we, we all know how where, where that got us. But yes, it's kind of a case, you know, who, who will be the first person to do it? And I'm not I'm not seeing anyone, even Jeremy Corbyn, who I think for all his faults did have the kind of, you know, conviction or whatever. He, when he really believed in something, he would say it, even if it was a terrible idea, electorally speaking. Even he didn't massively do it. So, you know, he will. Christina, you have actually hosted um, refugees and asylum seekers in the past, including some that came via the Calais route. What did you learn from that experience? I learned just how awful our asylum system is and just how inhumane. So we've had, I think, at least two refugees who came via Calais, both from Eritrea originally, and they did the long route, you know, going up through Sudan, ending up in Libya. They both got stuck in Libya for over a year, basically slave labour, crossed over to Italy on a boat, got rescued, and then walked to Calais. And they both managed to smuggle in on trucks. And, you know, it took them four or five years, and that was part of their childhood, you Mm. know. 
And I kind of did say to them, you know, why did you want to come all the way over here? Because it wasn't like either of them spoke particularly good English. But firstly, they kind of tended to conflate England with America. And they'd always been told that it was good here and Mm. that this was the place to go. And and I think for many of them, you just keep going, you keep going and hope it's better in your next place. And then they, they get here and then we're stuck in detention for years and in horrible conditions. And, and the thing that I found so hard about it was that while they're waiting for their asylum to be processed, there are no language lessons. They don't get taught English. There's no schooling. There's no effort to explain how life works here. And then once you get your status, you have... 28 days to get a job, find a bank account, um, open a bank account, uh, find somewhere to live. And so, so many people end up homeless because they can't do it. And that's where I was. So I was working with a charity refugees at home and they kind of get referred people who are on the street to come and stay with people. And, and I just find it heartbreaking because they were young men who fled a terrible regime, had had the worst years of their life and they come here and they're failed and they're set up to fail and they wanted to work they wanted to contribute they were both very religious was luckily their church I think you know saved their sanity and I just think why are we wasting human potential in this way it's just wrong right I mean it's just Mm. like I just cannot see how you can't think it's wrong yeah, I mean, and, and from everything I've heard, getting through the asylum process is getting slower and slower and harder and harder and, and, and worse and worse. Mm, by design, I think. In a tweet on Wednesday, Home Secretary Priti Patel talked about addressing the long-standing pull factors that encourage people to make the journey, some of them you just mentioned. Can pull factors be addressed while push factors are ignored? So, you know, can we basically hope to stem the tide by closing our own borders while climate change goes on, we sell arms that contribute to conflict, the botched withdrawal from Afghanistan, a lack of COVID vaccinations, a cut to foreign aid. I mean, the the, the list goes on and on. And it basically creates existential threats in their homes Will any law stop people from trying to avoid basically catastrophe? No. I mean, how can it? Like, like no one gives up years of their life for 40 quid a week. I mean, it just doesn't happen, you know. And and you kind of, you listen, you know, they they would, everyone I met would would love to be able to go back home, you know. And you hear stories about, like, they were telling me about Eritrea, and it just sounds like the most beautiful country, you know, one of one of the young men was saying to me, you know, if I felt safe, I would go back. And he can't because he's now, you know, he hasn't done his military service. And climate change is only going to make this this worse. We're going to be having millions of climate refugees over the next 50 years or more. We have to find a way to solve this problem, right? Because one day, you know, I, I always think that one day it might be us and, and, and surely we should treat people in the way that we want to be treated. And, and that means addressing global inequities and that's a hard thing to do but that that's what it's going to take Arthur just a few weeks ago there was the big row of fishing boats the past week into the mix with that letter being published and the Home Secretary being uninvited are Anglo-French relations 
now becoming quite irreparably damaged? Or do you think presidential election out of the way in either a new administration in or Macron feeling a bit more secure or a change of government on this side of the channel and everything could be reset? Well, I think I would never say that you can't fix this situation, but certainly the the relations are at, on a sort of technical diplomatic level, are at the lowest point they've ever been in in my lifetime and certainly in recent memory. And if you look to former British ambassadors to France, people who, who will have been through uh, several ups and downs over the years, uh, a lot of them draw that conclusion. It seems to me that the real challenge is, of course, Britain and France have always, because there are plenty of similarities in size and in relative power and you know, both sides of our economies and the size of our militaries and so on. We we are inevitably competitors. We seem to have reached a stage where a pointless needling of the French as a proxy for sort of tweaking the tail of Europe has become a kind of default position. Mm. And I think that there is something, I mean, I would defer to Marie on this, but I think there's something in French public discourse which is relatively formal and serious uh, and Boris Johnson, with his endless puns and and funny uh, disquisitions on Peppa Pig world, it just no nobody in France is is remotely impressed by that. <laughs> I think so. There's a combination of us coming across as a as a sort of bad faith uh, actor, constantly trying to kind of uh, cause difficulty. Added to that, this clownish figure as our prime minister, and and I think yeah, the, the relationship's in a pretty bad spot. I had only left the house to drop off a service wash when Jodie Whittaker was announced as a new Doctor Who. I ended up knocking off a betting shop instead. (laughs) Said nobody ever. (laughs) In a much ridiculed speech, Nick Fletcher MP highlighted the lack of male role models in film and TV, bemoaned Doctor Who, Ghostbusters, Luke Skywalker and The Equalizer being replaced by women and appeared to link this to male crime. Later, he issued a statement which concluded, I did not link a Doctor Who being female to crime being committed by men. In fact, I was making a statement that boys and young men also need positive role models within the media, just as women do. Marie, a lot of the debate has focused on his argument. There's been less scrutiny of the underlying assumptions, though, is there actually a lack of male role models on film and TV? I know absolutely not. And I mean, you know, and, and I say that I say that as a massive nerd as well. So, you know, I have seen in the cinema, I think every superhero movie, you know, that's been released in the past decade, uh, which is a pro- approximately sort of like 76 of them. And and there are so many, you know, so many male characters from Black Panther, Shang-Chi recently, Iron Man, Spider-Man, Captain America, Hawkeye, like so many of them. And, you know, yeah. there are good guys, bad guys, you know, the, the, the funny guys, the strong guys, etc. Like every possible kind of man you can think of is currently on television somewhere or on a cinema screen, or even Dune actually most recently probably, is just not correct. And even in real life as well, I think, you know, that's something I tweeted at the time as well. But 
it just felt so tone deaf to me as a speech just months after the Euros when actually the country rallied around, you know, a, a wonderful team, like the wonderful England team full of just lovely, lovely boys from all backgrounds and ethnicities and all kind of, you know, working well together and being generally sort of like generous and decent. And yeah, no, there, there's so many good men around. Arthur, even more pertinently, is crime actually on the rise? Again, the data I've seen doesn't suggest it. Well, no, it doesn't suggest it. And of course, throughout history, as far as I'm aware, men have been more involved with crime than women. Uh, the, the, the absence or otherwise of male role models may or not have had much bearing on that. So, so why would someone then make an argument that A is making B happen when neither A nor B is actually happening? Well, I think uh, we, we've got to get our heads around the uh, something which I read about. I, I wish I could claim it as my insight, but nothing is my insight. No. <laughs> so this, I, I read a fascinating article which described the triumphalist paranoid mindset. And what you see in the uh, current Tory party, particularly on that sort of Brexit populist fringe, is this thing where people who have run the country for more than a decade, who keep winning elections, who won their referendum, got the Brexit they want, they still operate in this paranoid space where everything is the fault of a miasma of so-called woke blob, you know, public sector, lefties, women, people who aren't who people who are gay or have have other other sexualities and so on so it's this sort of weird paranoia that the people in control are constantly telling you that they're actually the victims of a of a kind of great cultural shift and and this is clearly what's going on here you've got this man if you look up his um the background, Nick Fletcher MP. I mean, he's a pretty ordinary person. His, there's nothing interesting or, or remarkable about his CV. Uh, he may feel a lot of personal inadequacy, perhaps, when he watches uh, action movies and sees big muscly men doing amazing things. He can't connect with it. I don't know. But it ultimately, this is that paranoid mindset coming from a a politician who represents the the ruling party, and and that that is. It it kind of it's a it's a it's a demonstration of a worldview. Christina, you grew up at a time of uh, male Ghostbusters, Doctor Who, Equalizer, and Luke Skywalker. How did you manage to swerve a life of crime? <laughs> you know, he, he's saying that I have. Yeah, that's <laughs> I just don't think. Well, I don't think that our most important role models are, are fictional. You know, for me, it's it's your peers, it's your parents, it's your relatives, it's people who you can see doing something that you might imagine doing. And actually, that does matter. So I left science when I was 20, 21, because I was looking ahead and I could just see basically lots of really strange men. And I thought, that's not me. And, and I don't fit in. If that's what I have to be like, I don't fit into academia. And then I went back a few years later thinking, fuck it, I want to do this. But that's what matters. That's how you get people in there is by seeing people like you doing those things. That's why I think, say, you know, Kamala Harris is, is so is so important for the US. Um, I think what this is, is a bit, I don't know, there's a saying, and I'm probably going to get it wrong, but it's something like, you know, when, when you try and promote equality, the people who've been on top see it as, as oppression. And I yeah. think that's kind of what it is. It's seeing, oh my God, you know, my, people don't even realize they're doing it. They're kind of seeing their position threatened and, and they lash out. 
And, and yeah. this is what that seems like to me. As, as someone, you know, as, as someone said on Twitter, uh, I don't remember the name to credit them, but said, if you don't like, you know, female ghostbusters just have a fucking wagon wheel and switch over to the other side there's going to be <laughs> there's going to be an action film with a rock on it um marie camilla tomini um not noted for her openness to change it has to be said <laughs> writes in the telegraph it is surely only a matter of time before a trans woman with a whale oiled mustache starts solving crimes in the bbc is this part of the essence of culture warfare to start from something which, as we have established, isn't even happening and construct an even more fictitious, bigger future threat? Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, you know, I'm going to start by saying that, you know, Camilla is being a cliche there. And I'm happy to be a cliche on the other side to say that I would absolutely watch a crime show where the cop is a trans woman with a moustache solving crimes. That, that sounds delightful to me. Um, <laughs> As would I. <laughs> so, yeah, so there you go. You know, I, I can now cliche you, Camilla. Um, but, uh, but no, no, more seriously, yeah, that's actually what happens. And I think to, to be... <clears throat> to be fair as well, I would perhaps argue that the nature of the culture wars is that that does kind of happen on both sides now. So, you know, it, it is basically just a well-rehearsed scenario at this point of person X says, you know, silly thing, then the other camp basically, you know, ma makes fun or gets very angry or very annoyed or very sad, etc. And then the other side, you know, fights back, etc. So, so I do think that's, again, but that, you know, I, I feel like that, what, that happens once a week, twice a week, every day now, just someone says yeah. something on Twitter and then it makes its way uh, to the newspapers. I can remember, yeah, someone did point out that it would be quite interesting to see what um, the common pages of newspapers would become if Twitter were to suddenly disappear tomorrow. Like, I feel like all these journalists <laughs> would just have nothing to write about anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Christina, what about people from real life, like friends and family and teachers and work bosses, sports people? Uh, are they not role models? How does this criticism fit in with the same people that were telling footballers all year to stick to the day job when they do attempt to provide moral leadership? Well, it doesn't fit, does it? But I mean, that's never stopped anyone before. I mean, it doesn't, and none of it makes any sense. And I kind of think by trying to find a strand of logic in it, you know, we're, we're wasting our time. Yes, I mean, that's it's, true. It's just patently ridiculous thing to say. Arthur, the internet also lost its mind about a gay Santa in a Norwegian commercial because they felt that Christmas was being sullied somehow, um, you know, for, for those children in the UK who do tend to watch post-watershed Norwegian TV, at least. <laughs> um, and last year was a black Achilles that caused offence. So it turns out we don't just need men on TV, we need straight white men on TV. Are you feeling underrepresented? Well, yes, I am, of course, because other than James Bond, Indiana Jones... Han Solo, Batman, Superman, I could go on. I mean, people like me, you know, we never see straight white men and, and the, there are no role models. And of course, there are no straight white men in high positions in, in anywhere. So, you know, it's really tough. I find if I watch GB News, I, I get a, a lot more, uh, you know, a lot more sort of people connecting with this issue. So that's yeah. OK. We, we've, all, we've all got our little corner of the Internet. Marie, was he actually making a reasonable point just really, really badly about how most fictional male characters 
easily resort to violence. Would that have been a more elegant thing to say about, you know, how male male role model solution is usually to punch someone? That's, yeah, I guess that's true. I, I think, and, you know, and I wrote a piece with The Observer on this just this Sunday, but um, I, I think what I found frustrating about the speech is that I, I do believe he sort of had a point, and it's true that, you know, I think a lots of men do grow up without kind of, necessarily positive role models but more like around them I think it's more like a kind of you know societal level and that's not incorrect and I think and I know that he's been working with I can't remember what it's called now I think it's a charity called uh, Lads Need Dads which is kind of trying to easily provide young kids without dads with kind of like positive you know male representation in their day-to-day life you know which is a great thing that's a brilliant thing to do but so again so I think I, I just found it weird that he brought it back specifically to popular culture when there are clearly problems I think especially around sort of like young working class boys but I'm not sure you know Jodie Whittaker is it basically. Uh, as an aside my role model growing up Linda Carter as Wonder Woman <laughs> so maybe that explains a lot. And that brings us to the end of this week's bunker, which means it's now time for escape routes. What are the films, TV shows, music, books and miscellaneous activities that have taken our panellists' minds away from the bruising world of politics or virology, as the case may be? Arthur? Well, I, uh, unusually for me, I've been reading some poetry. So a good friend of mine was a man called Mark Huband, who uh, was a journalist and also involved with the Labour Party and, in fact, ran as the candidate facing Jacob Rees-Mogg in 2019 in Somerset. He didn't win, but, you know, he was a he was a very credible and and, and good candidate. Very sadly, Mark died uh, earlier this month, very unexpectedly, uh, an untimely death. And Mark was also a very talented poet, and he published a book called The Candidate, which was a book of poems about his experience of being a Labour candidate in that difficult election of 2019. Uh, and and I, I picked it up. He'd, he'd give me a copy, and I have to admit, I hadn't really got into it um, before his death. So I sort of picked it up. And it's full of beautiful and poignant poems. And Mark's website is still uh, is still up. So it's easy to look up and you, you can find copies of his books and get them online and things. So I really recommend uh, The Candidate. It's a short book of poems by the late and much missed Mark Huband. Oh, that sounds absolutely fascinating. What about you, Marie? I have just finished reading The Firestarters by Jan Carson, who's this brilliant uh, Northern Irish author. And it is such a good book. Um, it's, I don't want to reveal too much, but um, but yeah, no, I, I'd recommend Googling and buying it. It's just like brilliant sort of like contemporary Irish literature. Just a huge fan. And you, Christina? Well, the most recent book I read, well, I read June after watching it again, just to remind myself what happened. But then I read a book called Shards of Earth. I'm very into sci-fi by Adrian Tchaikovsky. And he wrote... The Children of Time novels, which I think Ian's mentioned before, one of the podcasts, which is about space spiders, but it's a really awesome series. Uh, and this is his new, this is the first of his new series. And it's a really big galactic scale book full of really interesting ideas. So that was really good. I've been watching uh, the new Beatles documentary by Peter Jackson on uh, Disney Plus, Get Back. I had to watch the first episode for the culture bunker, um, which I resented much because I'm not a Beatles fan, but I w- got completely hooked 
in the chemistry and the creative sort of genius flowing between the those four people. And... I saw the clip on Twitter of Paul McCartney. Oh, it's composing right. it. It's incredible. I saw it last doodling night. Doodling on his guitar and suddenly get back. It emerges. Yeah, with lyrics. Yeah, it's it's <laughs> it's, it's just. <laughs> It's extraordinary. The way I described it on our um, uh, Bunker Culture podcast was it's like watching Rembrandt doodling. That's what it felt like. And and suddenly there you see one of his famous paintings beginning to take shape. So I, I would heartily recommend that. It's not just for Beatles fan. I'm not one and I'm enjoying it immensely. And that's the end of this week's Bunker. Thanks to Arthur Snell. Thank you. To Marie Leconte. Thank you. And to our special guest, Christina Pargill. Thank you. We'll be back tomorrow with another Bunker Daily and the full-length show this time next week. And don't forget a new episode of The Culture Bunker every Saturday. Remember, if you like this podcast, send it to three friends to spread the word. There's a share button right there in your app. And if you really liked it, then you could support us on Patreon for early episodes, merchandise and all kinds of extras. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out more. Backers get a shout out at the end of the podcast. And here are some now. So hello and many thanks from me to Adrian Henderson, Shion Gallagher and Mark Beaven. Best wishes from me to Francis Foyle, Tom W and Hannah Cottle. And many thanks from me to Margaret Freeman, Joel Jacobson and to Andrew Wicks. Thanks for listening and we'll see you all next time. The Bunker was presented by Alex Andreu with Marie Leconte and Arthur Snell. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archibald and Yana Sofronievich and audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson the Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs>